The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey church, thank you so much for joining with us today. I just want to make you aware of a couple things. First of all, on Christmas Eve, Eve, December the 23rd, we will have our online Eve Eve service that starts at 5 p.m. and then is on demand for anyone after that point if you do not want to physically gather. But if you would like to join us, if you feel safe doing so, we are going to have two services at each campus. They're going to run simultaneously, so it's going to be at 5 and 6.30 at our Oklahoma City and our Norman campus. I would love for you to come. But once again, if this is not in the cards this year, then please, please join us online. December the 27th, okay, so a couple days after Christmas, we are not going to meet in person. We've done this for many years in the past. We just take that Sunday off to be with our family, to recharge, to give our staff a break. But there will be an online devotional that you can gather with your family on that morning and walk through. And I strongly, strongly encourage you to do that. Don't miss a week of gathering and talking about Jesus, especially just a couple days after Christmas. Those conversations can be so good and so fruitful. Now, We have made it through chapter one of the Gospel of Luke, okay? We've made it all the way through chapter one. We are now at the birth of Jesus. We're a couple days before Christmas. We have seen that the angels have come to pronounce the birth of Jesus, to fulfill the prophecies about how he would come and where he would come. We've seen that John the Baptist was born six months earlier to prepare the way. We saw that Zachariah and Elizabeth were blessed with that child. We see Mary and Joseph and now at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, we get to see the birth, the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, the one who would come to set his people free from their sins. It's a joyous time. It's a beautiful time. But what I love that Luke does is he tells the history behind it. He tells how God used an empire, the Roman Empire, to move Mary and Joseph 70 miles to make sure that the birth of Jesus would fulfill prophecy. I love seeing this story. I love how Luke tells it in such great detail. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus, okay? Now, that's not his real name. The Caesar at that point was Gaius Octavius, But he took the title Caesar because his great uncle was Caesar. Okay, that's Julius Caesar was his great uncle. So he didn't want to be called emperor. He didn't want to become king. He called himself Caesar Augustus. That was his title. His actual name was Gaius Octavius. He issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Okay, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, Pause right there for just a second. Quirinius wasn't governor yet. Okay? He wasn't governor yet. He would become governor in roughly 4 AD, but Jesus was born before this. Okay? He was a military leader. He was a well-respected person. And this was the first census that took place under him, even as a military leader. He had a very famous census that was actually mentioned in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts because it ended in riots. Okay? People literally rioted over this census when he was governor of Syria. 
So you might think this is wrong. It's just Luke being a little overly specific. This was his first census, but he was not quite yet governor. Verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. Everyone had to go to their own town to register. And this is important because, once again, this is how God is going to use the Roman Empire to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, which is where Jesus has to be born. If you look in John chapter 7, there's a huge debate as to whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah. There's a huge debate because they're saying, hey, we know that the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem, but Jesus, he is from Nazareth. We know that. We know his parents. We know his siblings, his half-siblings. He's not from Bethlehem. But Luke is showing us exactly how God moved them. In John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42, here's that dialogue. It says this, he is the Messiah. Still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? How can he come from Nazareth? That's not possible. Does not scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? That is absolutely what the scriptures say. And they're absolutely correct. They're going, hey, this family isn't from Bethlehem. They're from Nazareth. They're from Galilee. He can't be the Messiah because he was born in the wrong town. Oh, but he wasn't. And Luke masterfully shows us how God moved Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem for this amazing birth. 1 Samuel 17 verse 58 just affirms that the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, is truly what it's supposed to be. First, uh, chapter 17, verse 58. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, of Bethlehem. That's where I'm from. Joseph is a descendant of David. He had to return to his hometown to register because Quirinius had a census that was taking place. The first one ever. Why did the Roman Empire decide to have a census right then. Well, they'd been in power about four decades and uh, they realized we're not getting all our tax money. There's people out there who aren't paying. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to count everybody and we're going to make sure that they're paying their fair share. Now, the Roman Empire was vast even at this point. And so they did this differently with different people groups. But when it came to the Jews specifically, they said, hey, your records exist in your hometown. The 12 tribes of Israel did great jobs keeping records and lineages of ancestry. So those were housed in the towns where they came from. So Joseph had to go to Bethlehem and God worked through all of this. He used an empire to make sure that his son would be born exactly where he was supposed to be born. Luke chapter 2 verses 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary to be counted for the census, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
Now, I'm not going to for one minute try to glamorize what is happening here. It is cold. You're nine months pregnant. You have a 70-mile journey from your nice home to Bethlehem for one purpose, to simply sign a piece of paper saying, you can count me, you can tax me now. I don't know about you, but I'm not excited about this. There's also something that Luke mentions that uh, Joseph and Mary were pledged to be married to one another. Now, this is true, but the language in the English is a little deceiving. They were actually married at this point. Because if you recall, the angel of the Lord had told Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary. Go ahead and take her as your wife. And this is recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. It says this, When Joseph woke up from a dream with the angel, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, and he took Mary home as his wife. So somewhere after Mary comes back from visiting Elizabeth, they go ahead and have a wedding. Not the wedding that they were planning. Not the wedding that either of them dreamed about as children. Mary is four or five months pregnant with a baby that is not Joseph's. The scandal, the gossip, everything that surrounded this. And now as she is about to have the Son of God, as she is about to give birth, they've got to go to Bethlehem. But once again, it all has a great purpose. They arrive in a city that is busting at the seams. Bethlehem is not big. It's more agricultural, it's more rural, so it's not a huge city, but they arrive with all the other descendants from Bethlehem, all wanting to be counted. So it's not shocking to us that there isn't room for them. Now, if you've heard the traditional nativity scene, or you've heard the story, they come into town, they go to the inn or the motel, and the innkeeper tells them, we have no room, but I've got a barn out back that you can sleep in. If you've heard that version of the story, it's incorrect for really two reasons. One, Palestinians are known for their hospitality. And they would have accepted Mary and Joseph and given them somewhere to stay. Two, Bethlehem is not a trading route. It's not a place that a bunch of people tend to gather. So there really wouldn't have been a motel there. There would have simply been households, homes of relatives of Joseph. And when they get to a relative's house, which there's all kinds of other relatives already there, There's no guest room left. And and the NIV translates it correctly. There wasn't a guest room left because there was already people there. Now, we picture Mary giving birth to Jesus out in a barn, surrounded by hay with donkeys and cows looking in. Most likely she gave birth in the main room of the home. And then those who were caring for her, caring for baby Jesus, they said, hey, the warmest place we have is the manger. The warmest place we have is underneath our home where the animals do sleep, but that's the best place for you to go bed down your child. A manger or even a trough, as some translate it, was turned into the crib of the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. A mother overjoyed the birth of a child. A father going, wow, this is not how I planned it. And heaven, as we'll see on Christmas Eve Eve, 
rejoicing. For they're the only ones at this point who know the magnitude of the events that have just transpired. But as we look at this, as we look at this story, there's a couple just interesting facts I want to point out. Number one, Jesus is referred to as Mary's first son, a son. This has importance because of the Mosaic law. So going all the way back to Exodus, when God gave Moses the law, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, Consecrate to me, give back to me God. So this is God speaking. Give back to me every firstborn male. So Mary's first son, as Luke lines out, was given back to God. Now, as the son of God, we would expect that. But I do think there's some importance here, and I think that's why Luke mentions it. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether it's a human or an animal. This was God's one and only son. This was his child. And for that reason, this child was given back to God. We also know that this was not the only child that Mary had. Jesus had at least six other half-siblings. We see that from Matthew 13, verse 55, when people had gathered going, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, four brothers named there, And aren't all his sisters with us? So it doesn't give a number, but we know it's plural, all. So at least two. So we had at least six half-siblings. At first, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they will all come to do so soon. And James, that first brother listed there, will become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. As I think about this story, the details that Luke gives us, What is so special? What is so magnificent about this story, about the birth of Jesus? Well, at first glance, there's nothing super special. A 70-mile trip in the winter while nine months pregnant, that would not have gone over well in my household. But it was God's plan. No nice room to swaddle your brand new baby. No, the barn, the manger. It's not how it was planned. That probably wouldn't have gone well, but it's exactly what God intended. A wedding, we've already discussed, that took place somewhere in the midst of all this chaos. Not what they planned, but it's exactly what God had planned for them. And church, I don't know about you, but looking at 2020 and what this year has meant and what it has been, probably not what you planned. I've talked about this a lot. When I set goals for 2020 and I look back at them now, I just laugh. I laugh because of how far off I was. It wasn't what I planned. But I just wonder, I wonder, is God possibly not doing something greater and bigger than I could have ever imagined. Mary and Joseph had no idea why a census for the first time ever in the Roman Empire would be taken at this point, but God did. God knew, and he used it. He used the most powerful empire in the world to fulfill his will. 
We've never in our lifetimes thought a pandemic and an economic crisis and social unrest. We've never in our lifetimes thought, oh, this is going to be great. I just want more of that. But it doesn't shock God. And if he can use the Roman Empire to orchestrate events for his son to be born in the only way that he could have been born to fulfill the prophecy and to declare that he is the Messiah. If he can do that, he can work through this. He can work through this. Just a couple questions as we wrap up today. What in your life right now seems to be trying, difficult, can you trust and believe that in the midst of that, God still has a plan? Can you have the faith to believe that even though this seems impossibly hard right now, God is still in control? How can you better trust God this week, Christmas week? How can you better trust him as your savior and as your friend, how can you celebrate him this week? Not just because of what you have, but because of who he is. How can you make this season, how can you make this next few days special and wonderful as you seek not your own will, but the will that God has for you and your life. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but as we celebrate maybe very differently than you had planned on celebrating, make sure that the object of that celebration is seen and felt and known in your own heart and the hearts of those who gather with you. Because God is absolutely in control. He is absolutely moving and working for his will and his purpose and his plan for you in this season is good. You just got to trust him. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his birth. Thank you for the way that you orchestrated an entire empire to make sure that your will would be done. We believe that you can do even greater things than these. We believe that if we have faith, we will see those. So just pour out your many, many blessings upon us in this season. We love you and we thank you. That's in your name we pray.